2009, October 14th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 15, The Chemistry of Life. Okay. So, we've been talking about the nature of life. And again, we're, we're looking at biology through the eyes of an astronomer. I am not a biologist. I do not even play one on television or the internet. But what I'm going to be doing is trying to do with these lectures is go through modern biology and try to find inside of modern biology interesting clues for what I should be looking for when I'm going to be looking for life on other worlds. Both what the chemistry of that life should be, but also trying to get clues as to what the requirements for life should be on other places. I want to look in the right places. Now in some sense, this exercise is kind of like the old story about the drunk guy looking for his, his car keys underneath the street lamp. Why are you looking there? Well, there's light here. The same is true of our search for life on other worlds. We're kind of looking under the street lamp. We're using terrestrial life as an example and hoping it gives us clues, but always with the expectation somewhere in the back of our mind that, as always happens, nature is going to surprise us. So today we want to take a close look at the chemistry of life and see what we can learn from the actual chemical processes that go on inside cells for clues as to conditions of life and maybe just something about the origin of life on Earth that might inform us in our search for life on other worlds. So today we're going to be talking about the chemistry that's responsible for life. The first thing we want to make a point is we want to introduce the idea of metabolism. Metabolism, broadly speaking, is a set of chemical processes that require both energy and or nutrients to a cell. Basically, it's the life, cycle, life of the cell is powered by metabolism. <clears throat> now, if we look carefully at cells on Earth, what we find is a very interesting fact. Every single form of life on Earth today, and certainly as near as we can tell, we found so far, uses something called the ATP cycle for transporting chemical energy within cells to accomplish this task of metabolism. Why is that? Well, that's a very important clue, we think, both to uh, the idea of a common ancestor, but also is it necessarily something we expect to see on life on other worlds? And we'll discuss that here in just a second. The other thing we can look at is we can use this, this metabolism, the way in which a cell gets energy and raw materials to do its biochemical thing, helps us classify animals according to that metabolism and their sources of carbon. And there are two broad classes of, of, of organisms. We can talk about autotrophs or heterotrophs, and we'll define them in this lecture. Furthermore, we can look at the, even the, within autotrophs or heterotrophs, we can ask, well, what's the source of energy that the, that the organism uses? Does it use sunlight? At which point we talk about photoorganisms. Or is it purely chemical? And we're talking about chemoorganisms. Not surprisingly, we're going to find that we'll be talking about photoautotrophs and photoheterotrophs, chemoautotrophs and chemoheterotrophs are the possible combinations. What's their source of energy and how does their metabolism work to utilize that energy? Remember, energy utilization was one of the keys to understanding one of the nature requirements for life. And finally, at the end, there is no discussion of, of organism, biological chemistry that's going to be complete without bringing up the subject of water. Just like carbon chemistry is special for the chemistry of life, water turns out to be in many ways special for life as well. Turns out water is the ideal solvent medium for life to occur in. Another important clue for what we should be looking for when we're looking for life on other worlds. So this is our goal today, is to look at the chemistry of life and see what we can learn both about the nature of life on Earth, clues to the origin of life on Earth, and clues that we can carry forward to looking out beyond the Earth. So the first thing we can look at for chemistry is, chemistry is what occurs between chemical elements. 
molecules, the exchange of electrons, the formation of compounds, molecules, polymers, all that fancy stuff that constitutes chemistry. If we look at the chemistry of life, what we find is it actually works with a fairly limited recipe book of ultimate raw materials, ultimate elements. The primary elements of, Earth, of life on Earth are fourfold, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, which you can remember by the simple word chon, or chone, or however you want to pronounce that. Carbon is the basis of all chemistry in life, as we saw a bit yesterday. The complex organic compounds are all due to the wonderful chemical properties of carbon, which allows a, a simply mind-boggling diversity of possible compounds. Hydrogen and oxygen, their primary role in Chan here is as water, as the universal solvent for life. But also we will find that the chemistry, the deep detailed chemistry, which we're not going to go into in this class, involves either oxidation or reduction. Oxidation is chemistry involving oxygen. Reduction is chemistry involving hydrogen, or really protons, but hydrogen. And finally, nitrogen. A sort of odd element out here. Nitrogen in the air is chemically sort of inert, except for a handful of wacko bacteria called nitrogen-fixing bacteria. But nitrogen plays a very important role in the chemistry of cells. It's a key component of amino acids and DNA. They're nitrogenated compounds. So carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen form the sort of four pieces essential for life. But while they're essential, they're not the only pieces we need. There are other elements as well. Now, there's lots of trace elements that come into play. Iron, for example, hemoglobin, the, one of the active ingredients in the oxygen transport cycle in your blood depends upon the iron nuclei that are embedded deep inside of, of a hemoglobin molecule. But there are two particular elements that we're going to run into over and over again in this section. Phosphorus, which is an essential component of DNA, RNA, and two molecules we're going to meet today essential for metabolism, adenosine triphosphate and adenosine diphosphate. The phosphorus, an odd chemical out on Earth, is essential for life. The other is going to be sulfur. At least two of the essential amino acids, cysteine and methionine, rely on sulfur compounds, sulfur inside of their molecules. And there are other elements, which we're not going to encounter as much in here, but sulfur turns out to be one of those things that pops up every now and then, having essential chemical, form, chemical um, usefulness in biological systems. Now, there are lots of other possibilities, but these are the sort of the big four, and then one would add the other two, phosphorus and sulfur, to, to the sort of the six chemicals, the six basic chemical elements that give us most of the pieces of biochemistry. So just a few illustrations here. Yesterday, we talked about the 22 amino acids found, found on life in the Earth. These are those 22 amino acids. Um, Every single one of them begins with an L, which tells you it's a left-handed amino acid, with the sole exception here of glycine, which is the only amino acid that we know of that doesn't have handedness to it. It just comes in one form, neither left nor right. There are two of the 20 on top here are the ones that are found in most forms of life in some mix or another. The two down here on the bottom, levopyrolysine and levoselenocysteine, are two oddballs that were only recently discovered. They happen to occur primarily in bacteria or archaea. Now, of these, so most of these are nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen, and the carbons are at the boundaries here of the little skeleton. So we just, there's so much carbon around that chemists just give up, throw up their hands and stop drawing C for carbon. So wherever you see a joint here that doesn't have a C, that's a carbon. And then you can see the use of hydrogen, oxygen and hydrogen. That's basically a water with one of its protons taken away. That's a hydroxyl, really common. 
NH2, that's the amino group, that's the nitrogen-hydrogen bit that makes it an amino acid. And then there's various oxygen and hydrogen hanging off various places. They only put the, pre the individual hydrogens are only hung off here if they happen to be functionally important. Otherwise, there should be four bonds, four little lines going into every corner there where there's a carbon, because carbon takes four bonds. We just, again, stop showing the hydrogen after a while, too, to make it clean. Otherwise, these things would be a complete rat's nest. So sulfur shows up on two of the 20, 10% of the uh, amino acids essential for life. Now, if you take this one, cysteine, which has a sulfur there, and you change out the sulfur for selenium, you get selenocysteine. Why selenium? No one knows. It just happens to be something that shows up in certain enzymes. So you can do some pretty strange stuff here. Selenium and sulfur are related chemically, so selenium can actually take the place, but selenium is a very rare metal. So this is the kind of stuff you get into. It's mostly C, H, O, and N within the, the amino acids, and then with a couple of little extra goodies, which are quite important, sulfur, and the case of some oddball archaea, selenium. If we go to other molecules, which we're going to meet today and tomorrow, the big uh, organic polymers that are important for life, dioxyribonucleic acid, or good old DNA, mostly carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen in all the little base pairs we're going to meet tomorrow. But the sugar backbone on either side of the double helix is phosphated. And the little bonds between the various pieces of the uh, backbone of DNA, if you will, the sort of joints between each of these units of DNA, is a phosphate. Similarly, the principal chemical responsible for metabolism in every living cell on Earth is adenosine triphosphate. You get an adenosine here with one, two, three phosphorus oxygen groups on that. Each of those is called a phosphate. So that's a triphosphate, one, two, three, triphosphate. So again, sulfur is important in a couple of amino acids. Carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen are a constant throughout the system. And phosphorus also plays an essential role. It's part of the backbone of DNA and RNA. And it's one of the essential pieces of a molecule which is absolutely essential for cell metabolism. Okay, so that's raw materials. Now let's do something with those raw materials. Well, what is it that a cell does? We often, there's a tendency among biologists or scientists in general to use everyday language in non-everyday ways. And one of, those, one of those pieces of language that can often be very confusing and misleading is biologists will often talk about a cell's biochemical machinery as if it was some kind of thing which is put together from parts. It's actually, calling it a machine is, is kind of almost an insult to, uh, to biochemistry because the chemistry involved in here is far more complex than any machine we have ever been able to create. But the principal piece of any cellular chemical machinery, if you will, is metabolism. Metabolism is a broad-reaching word which basically is that set of all chemical processes which go into cell function. They either provide energy for cell or they provide nutrients for cell. Nutrients in this case means raw materials to do cell fun functional chemistry. Now, metabolism has two fundamental requirements to occur. Number one, first and foremost, you need a source of raw materials. You need something to work with. If you want to think of a cell as a little chemical factory, you better have an input side of raw materials. The primary raw material, not surprisingly, is carbon. Because carbon is the basis of all the chemistry within cells, so we have to have an abundant supply of carbon that can be assembled into the various proteins and carbohydrates and lipids and all those other things that go into the cell's, cell's biochemical makeup. You also need all of the other elements that are essential for chemistry, or at least certainly for biochemistry. 
oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, phosphorus, sulfur, and so forth. So we need a raw source of raw materials, but the big important one with a bullet is, really, for cells on Earth, we need a source of carbon. The second thing we need is a source of energy. Chemistry does not just simply spontaneously happen. <laughs> Things have to expend energy in order for chemistry to occur. And so you need something that's going to power that conversion of raw carbon into something useful that the cell can use, like a sugar to use as a, a bit of sort of restored fuel, to make a, li a lipid compound, to build a cell membrane, to build up things like DNA and other organic compounds needed, proteins needed for cell function. So you're not going to just simply have carbon, throw them in a bag, and kind of hope that they're going to arrange themselves in something useful for you. You've got to put energy into that system. And there are two basic sources of energy that you're going to be able to tap. One is going to be the energy in certain types of chemical reactions, known as chemo ener chemical energy, and the other is going to be energy from the sun. And so at least, at least once in this lecture, I get to show the gratuitous astronomical picture of the sun. So we're that's about all we're going to get for astronomy for the next 30 minutes. So these are the sources of power that can basically power the chemistry going on in cells to turn raw materials into useful organic compounds. Because after all, the universe is not made of organic compounds. The universe is made of elements. <coughs> all right, so what is one of the key elements of metabolism in cells? One of the interesting and, and quite surprising results of biochemistry is finding that there is one particular compound that is repeated in every single living organism on the planet. And that's ATP, or adenosine triphosphate. It's the main energy source used in cells. But I'll be more specific. It's the main energy source used in every single cell that has metabolism. That's a surprising statement, because there are lots of other things that could do this. It's used by a lot of different cellular functions. It plays a role in protein synthesis. It plays a role in RNA and DNA synthesis within cells. And it basically works to help transport big molecules across cell membranes. It's an, it's an extremely useful player. So the utility infielder of biochemistry. But ATP has two properties that make it very, very important that allow it to set up as sort of an energy mediator inside of cells. The first of these is that ATP is produced in cells by either photosynthesis or respiration. So there is a very clear mechanism for taking these processes of photosynthesis, light energy, or respiration, breathing in from an animal, and turning that into, basically taking that energy producing mechanism and turning it into ATP. If I break ATP down, I can do that by energy releasing processes. So I put energy into the system, make ATP, and then elsewhere ATP gets broken down to tap that energy. So I have a way to store energy. ATP acts like energy storage. I transform either pho photon energy, light energy, or chemical energy through photo, say, photosynthesis or respiration, turn it into ATP. I store that energy in chemical form, and then later on there are processes that can get that energy out of the ATP and use it for whatever the cell needs, whether it's building proteins, building DNA, using RNA to transcribe some some protein that it needs for something, using to build cell walls, growing itself. Every single cell function needs to tap some energy. And what it does is it goes in and it dips to the well of the cell's ATP reserves. So we have this vast array of possible cell functions, and they all get their energy from one place, from the ATP molecule. It's a common energy source for a wide variety of these biochemical processes. And this is the molecule up here of interest to us. 
I don't often want to draw molecules or point them out, but this one's very important for this long chain of phosphates on the end. That's the key to the energy in, energy out bit. Now here's a cartoon showing how the ATP cycle, it's the engine of cells, works. You bring in energy. Okay, remember, energy input builds up ATP from ADP, adenosine diphosphate, two of these, and a phosphate within the cell. So I stick a phosphate onto an ADP. It's not going to happen naturally. I have to give it some energy to make that connection. So I've taken photon energy or respiration energy from the, from the organism, and I've said, here, cell, use this to make some ATP. The ATP then cycles up here where it stores the energy, and a process that needs that energy pops the phosphorus, phosphate group, off the end. That releases the energy that bonded that phosphate group to the end of the ADP, breaking the ADP back into ADP, and then the phosphate energy is then grabbed by whatever in the cell happens to need it. But because I broke it back into ADP and phosphorus, the next time I come energy in, I make ATP, then I break down ADP into ADP plus phosphorus, then I build it back up again, and I run in a cycle. And this is how, this basically, this is their, ATP, if you will, is built through energy, broken down by things that need energy, and it's just there in cycles. An interesting number to conjure with that I have, will state fully, I have not checked for, ver for, for correctness as far as doing the calculation myself, but your, your body, in the course of 24 hours, turns over its own weight in ATP every day to power your metabolism. So it sits there making ADP to ADP inside of all your cells. If you add it up every time you made an ATP and could imagine piling it up, you basically turn over or convert your own weight. Now, of course, your body is not ATP. It's only a small fraction, which tells you how many times it's turning over to make your cells go. It's an amazing thing. But there's one even, again, a much more amazing fact. ATP is the only energy cycle used for storage and transport within every single cell and every single living creature we've studied in detail on the Earth. This isn't to say that exceptions are hiding out there, but they seem to be hiding really, really well. This is evidence, again, for this idea that all cellular life on the Earth probably originated with some kind of common ancestor which used the ADP cycle for its metabolism. Since the, the Instructions for how to set up the ATP cycle are coded in the DNA, which is part of the hereditary heredity of the cell. Then it is passed down from generation to generation, and as each different type of cell evolves into other types of cells over long periods of time, they carry with it that basic instruction. So we expect that ADP cycling in cells must be very, very ancient on the Earth because it's everywhere, even in lineages which broke apart probably somewhere around 3 billion years ago. There are other possible ways to do these chemical catalytic cycles of storage and release of energy. There are lots of different of these cycles. Heck, I've got batteries inside of my uh, pointer here, which are rechargeable. So there's actually even you know, other ways, chemical pathways, to store and release energy. But what's interesting is we don't know why those other cycles have never emerged, other than to say that once those instructions got in place, it was such a good storage and release mechanism that nothing else came in, came in close. We don't know why. It's still a big mystery of life as to why this works that way. But it's a very tantalizing clue to the nature of common ancestors. Now, it also plays an interesting role in this class from the point of view of astrobiology. Is just because that's the way Earth life, Earth life got started doesn't mean that Earth, that other planetary life might not get started in different ways. 
Maybe there is something about the ADP ATP cycle that is special, that's highly efficient, that makes it if you had any different ways, that's the one that would come out on top as the best way to, to run cell metabolism. But we don't know for sure that that's the case. So maybe a way to recognize truly alien life is we might come across microbes that do not use the ADP ATP cycle inside of them. If we really came across that, one exception, say in a Mars rock or under the oceans of Europa or something, that would be really, really interesting. It would be something that was truly, truly alien. Of course, the other question is, what if we find that on Earth? Uh, then maybe, maybe not so much. Maybe there are alternative pathways, but we haven't found it yet. So it's one of the interesting clues that might be hiding in this, unusual, this, this interesting fact that all cells use the ADP-ATP cycle for energy metabolism. Every single one. Something that's, it's one of the ways in which we're related to bacteria and everything else. Okay, questions about metabolism. That was just kind of a lot of material thrown at once. None? Okay. So once I've established metabolism inside of a cell, I need to then say, well, well, metabolism has two requirements. The first was a source of energy. The second was a source of raw materials. So let's look a little more closely at that source of raw materials and see if we can get any interesting insights to the way life works from that. So first of all, I said that what we really look at is because carbon is the basis of chemistry in life, we're looking for sources of carbon. Carbon's kind of the raw material, and we carry along all the oxygen, hydrogen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur along with it. Turns out that the way in which organisms get their carbon and the way they extract energy from a cell is what's uh, extract energy from their environments turns out to be a way to distinguish different forms of life on Earth. And we can talk about bacteria and archaea and eukarya from the point of view of cell structure, but there are also natural divisions among organisms on Earth by where they get their carbon and how they use energy from harvest energy from their environment. And there's four basic pieces. For sources of carbon, there are two distinctions. Autotrophs, which comes from a word meaning self-feeding, doesn't mean they feed on themselves. What it really means is an autotroph gets carbon by get it bringing in carbon dioxide. One of the most common forms of carbon on this planet is carbon dioxide. Where's carbon dioxide? Well, for one, it's in the air. For two, it's dissolved into seawater, or, or water in general. So an autotroph is an organism that either lives in the water and takes carbon dioxide out of the water or lives up in the air and breathes in air, breathes in carbon dioxide and uses that as its source of carbon for chemistry. The other class are those who get their carbon elsewhere than simply breathing it in from water or air and they're called heterotrophs. The word hetero means other and troph means to feed, so they feed on others. So, for example, they get their carbon by eating organic compounds. We're, heterotroph we're heterotrophs. We eat other carbon compounds. So, autotrophs get their carbon from CO2, either air or water. Heterotrophs eat their carbon. They eat something. Now, that's a source of carbon. What's the source of energy that gets used by the organism? Well, again, there's a division, it turns out, very clear division of two possible sources of energy that are available. You can use light, photons, through a process called photosynthesis, and you use sunlight to get energy. The other form of energy, source of energy, is called chemosynthesis. Chemosynthesis is in which we use oxidation of inorganic compounds, hydrogen, iron, sulfur, ammonia, etc. An inorganic compound is a comp 
compound that does not contain carbon as the basis of its chemistry. So there's organic chemistry, which is all of carbon chemistry. Inorganic is the whole rest of the periodic table. So a chemosynthesis system is one in which, for example, you might use iron dissolved in the water or sulfur dissolved in the water, say, next to a volcanic vent, and use that with some oxygen chemistry, maybe grabbing in some water and maybe pulling in a little bit of CO2 from the surrounding water and performing this process of chemosynthesis. Down in the deep sea, there's no sunlight, so you're not going to have photosynthesis powering life going on down there. Human beings use a form of chemosynthesis as well. We don't spread ourselves to the sun and get energy that way to power our metabolism. We actually do it not so much by inorganic synthesis uh, oxidation, but also organic oxidation can come into play as well. So let's go through each of these different possibilities and look at the different kinds of organisms that are associated with each. One of your homework problems asks you to do this in reverse. I'm giving you four organisms and having you think about what is their source of carbon, what is their source of energy, and whether they qualify as different kinds of trophs or different energy sources. So let's take heterotrophs, for example. A heterotroph is an organism that gets its carbon by eating organic compounds, sometimes by eating other organisms, which is usually the case. It's how we do it most times. I'm not sure that some foods we eat actually are organic. Technically, they're organic because they contain carbon, but they've never been living, as near as I can tell. I don't think a Twinkie has ever lived. There's two different ways in which you can define heterotrophs. And now we get these nice, long, sort of $2 words. A chemoheterotroph is a heterotroph that feeds on organics, well, it feeds on organics and gets its energy from those same organic compounds. So, for example, we are chemoheterotrophs if you want to classify human beings. In fact, all animals that we know of are chemoheterotrophs. We eat our organics, and we get our energy from eating up those organics. Those organics that give us energy are things like sugars and carbohydrates and lipids. Fungi are, are good examples of chemoheterotrophs. Many bacteria are chemoheterotrophs. We can, we can live in the dark as long as we have something to eat and something to breathe. The other possibility are what are called photoautotrophs, which get their energy from sunlight, but they feed on other organics. These turn out to be very rare organisms. There's only a handful of these that are actually known. So this is kind of the low population corner of the four possibilities of chemophotoautohetero. Whoa, that should have been photoheterotroph. Oops, my bad. Photoheterotroph, yeah. So, for example, the chloroflexus bacterium here is green. It has chlorophyll in it, but it doesn't breathe in carbon dioxide. It latches on to organics in the environment and then uses energy from the chlorophyll-powered ADP-ADP cycle to do its metabolism. The other possibility is something called a heliobacterium. It's a bacterium, not surprisingly from its name, helio for the sun, uses sunlight power to power its metabolism, to get it cranking without chlorophyll, but to actually work to run its metabolism, but it eats organics. It lives, for example, on, I think heliobacteria live on, on rotting plant material, but they have to live up on the surfaces to get sunlight to be able to do their metabolism thing. If they got underneath the plant layers, they die because they don't have light. Okay, so chemoheterotroph and photoheterotroph. My apologies for that one. Autotrophs are the other half of the, of the metabolism cycle. They're the organisms that get their carbon from carbon dioxide. And there's two basic sources of carbon dioxide, the carbon dioxide in the air and the carbon dioxide that's dissolved in the water. 
So we got a little fizzy water over here. Is carbon dioxide dissolves very readily in water. That's a good thing. That's where most of the carbon dioxide on our planet is in the oceans and down in the crustal rocks, not in the air where it would cause a runaway greenhouse effect. A photoautotroph is a creature that autotroph uses CO2, in this case mostly CO2 in air or CO2 in water, and sunlight energy to do its metabolism. So for example, green plants are photoautotrophs. So photosynthetic bacteria that live in the water or live on the, on the land are photoautotrophs. Photo, they get their energy from light. Autotroph, they suck up carbon dioxide from the environment, either from water or from air. A somewhat rarer class of autotrophs are called the chemoautotrophs. They too use carbon dioxide, mostly dissolved in water, as their source of carbon, but they use oxidation of inorganic chemicals like iron, sulfur, and ammonia to provide their energy. So for example, this nifty little guy right over here is, is a heat-loving um, heat bacterium growing up near an undersea uh, volcanic vent. Some bacteria in archaea, these things are down deep in the ocean. There's no sunlight down there. They're living in very warm conditions, but those areas near the volcanic vents are very, very rich in iron and sulfur being brought up from inside the earth. Those provide inorganics that when you oxidize iron or oxidize sulfur, that's an energy-producing phenomenon. And so you do that oxidation, you derive energy, and you use that to drive these cells, use the oxidation of iron and sulfur to basically drive their ADP, ATP cycles for metabolism. And then that metabolism cycle draws in carbon dioxide dissolved in the, in the surrounding water to provide its raw materials. So again, we see that there's an interesting uh, division here among the chemoheterotrophs, photoheterotrophs, photoautotrophs, and chemoautotrophs. Among the heterotrophs, chemoheterotrophs are the most common. Photoheterotrophs are fairly rare. But when I switch over to the autotrophs, the photoautotrophs are the ones that are really common, and the chemoautotrophs are relatively rare. So it's telling us a little something about the way in which animals kind of divided up the use of resources. It turns out that for large, complex creatures, if you eat things, you need a lot of machinery to do that consumption, break down what you've eaten into carbon. So if you're going to do that, you're probably not going to be terribly efficient as a plant, but you are pretty efficient as sort of an animal or a fungus. Right? Fungus latch onto a, a hunk of, of, of dead wood, chew it up chemically, use their chemical metabolism to break down cellulose into carbon, suck up the carbon, and then use chemicals in the environment to power their life. So they're basically these chemoheterotrophs. Similarly, for autotrophy, where you're going to get your light from CO2, for example, or your carbon from CO2 or your carbon from the water, carbon dioxide is a, is a trace in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is just dissolved in the water. You want to be able to spread yourself out a bit, if you can, to be able to collect up enough of the surrounding uh, carbon dioxide, and having photons around when you're spread out, you're a natural photon catcher. So evolution is going to definitely favor that combination. Whereas chemoheterotrophs, to have the kind of chemical environments where you have a lot of chemical energy around to use dissolved CO2, you're probably going to be relatively tiny. You're not going to be very big because heat is really rough on you. So that's some of the clues for these divisions and the relative frequency of the hemo, auto, 
photo-chemo combinations, is telling us something about the different selective pressures that have worked on evolution over many millions of years to build up these asymmetries. We don't find equal numbers of all these possibilities. So let's look at a couple of these processes. Photosynthesis in autotrophs is basically the conversion of CO2 and water in, via sunlight into oxygen and sugars. Now I'm just going to show a picture here. There's a very detailed chemical cycle here called the Calvin cycle that does all the, all the work. But light coming in produces these light reactions, and you'll notice ATP and ADP plus phosphate is part of the cycle here. There's also two other compounds here, NADPH and NADP, which are a similar side metabolic cycle, but they do different function. So the Calvin cycle is basically the cycle of which photosynthesis works. Here's a, a, a micro, microgram of a moss cells. These are the cells, plant cells for this particular moss, Plagiomonum affinae, showing the little chloroplasts, little sites of the photon converting chemistry. Again, it's interesting that most of the photosynthesis on this planet is done with one very small limited class of biochemical molecules called chloroplast, basically these chlorophyll cycles. Again, hints of a common ancestor for all photo, um, in this case, photoautotrophs. And also, chlorophyll is found in the photoheterotrophs. Chemosynthesis tends to occur, well, both in bodies, but the real interesting place for chemosynthesis, especially in these rare classes of chemoautotrophs, is where you take carbon dioxide and convert it into organics by using the oxidation of inorganic compounds or methane. Methane is the one exception to that rule. There are classes of bacteria or archaea that actually are methane-eating. This turns out to be a surprisingly diverse set of organisms which live either in the oceans or in, or in the, or the archaea. And many of them occur deep in, the under, un, deep in the ocean, as I mentioned before, near these deep sea volcanic vents. We're going to meet these again on Friday because a large number of these are a class of, of, of organisms called extremophiles. They live in very, very extreme environments. These undersea vents are very important because, as I mentioned before, they provide organics iron for the most part and sulfur, and then you get a little hydrogen sulfide perhaps as a way of getting some of the sulfur, and you get CO2 from the surrounding dissolved seawater. As you warm up seawater, it makes it easier for the CO2 trapped inside to get out. So it makes the warm water has got CO2 much more accessible than cold water. Now what's interesting about these, these chemo uh, autotrophs, represent a fairly diverse biota on Earth they may in fact have been the very first forms of life to have emerged on Earth. If we look back through the phylogenetic tree, we start finding the oldest organisms are the archaea and the bacteria, and as we'll see on Friday's lecture, a lot of them are the types of organisms we find today around deep sea undersea vents. They're extremophiles. Not 100%, but for the most part. And that may again be partial clues for why the life emerged where it did or where we might consider looking for life on other worlds with volcanic activity. Okay, questions about autotrophy, heterotrophy, chemophoto? Question there? No questions, okay. So the final bit we want to get into is the medium for life. We've mentioned all of this various chemistry going on, but you know, chemistry doesn't just sort of happen sitting out on top of surfaces. Chemistry, well, I suppose you can get some chemistry to go on on this tabletop, but you can get the chemistry to go on a lot more efficiently if you poured water on the tabletop first. It's not too surprising that any complex chemistry needs some kind of medium for that chemistry to occur in. It requires what's referred to by chemists as a solvent.
There's a lot of different uh, functions that the solvent performs for chemistry. The first of these is it simply provides a basic medium for the chemical reactions to occur. Especially when we're talking about chemistry of life, where we have a lot of cycling going on, where we're bringing in nutrients and pushing out waste. You need some place, if you will, for the chemistry to happen. And water, or any kind of solvent, there are other possible solvents, are very good for this. The other thing a solvent does, if it's a fluid, a liquid, then you have a way to transport nutrients into the system, and if you make waste, transport those wastes away. The last thing you want is a closed system for life, because if you do that, you eat up all your nutrients and aren't bringing anything in, eventually you starve. Or even if you are in a nutrient-rich medium, if you're producing lots of waste, wastes are usually the bad byproducts of the chemistry you're going on, if you build up too many of them, you choke the cell function down. You, you drown in your own crap. Okay, that's a good way to think about it. So you'd like some way to wash in new nutrients and wash out the waste. And fluids are very good for that. The other thing fluids are very good of is maintaining thermal balance. An especially good property of a, of a good medium for chemistry has what's called a high heat capacity, a high ability to take up heat without you know, flashing into a vapor and still staying liquid. This is useful because chemistry produces heat. Chemistry makes heat. And if that heat is allowed to build up in an organism, the temperature might rise to begin to alter the local chemistry. Proteins, for example, come apart under high heat. So you don't want the organism getting too hot. The organism needs to regulate its heat somehow. And a good way to do that is suspend it in a medium that acts like a big radiation medium that can carry the heat away through conduction. So another good property of a good solvent for organic chemistry is a high heat capacity, the ability to suck up that energy. Finally, having a place to swim, whatever your solvent is, protects you from the larger environment. For example, large bodies of water block ultraviolet radiation coming from the sun. And as we'll see, for example, tomorrow, ultraviolet radiation can do bad things to the giant molecules, DNA and RNA. And if they're carrying your hereditary information, you don't want them getting taken apart regularly by stray high-energy photons. It can protect you from freezing. It can protect you from large changes in temperature. One of the aspects, for example, of a high heat capacity is the outside air can be changing to very large excursions in temperature, but the water can act, or solvent that you're dissolved in, can act like an insulator and help both absorbs heat, but also kind of keeps heat in. So there's lots of different roles that these things, the, the solvent can play. Chemistry doesn't occur on the surfaces of dry rocks, for the most part. Well, not surprisingly, given I kept using the word water when I was trying to be more generic and say solvent, is telling you what the ideal solvent of chemistry. If it didn't exist, we would almost have to invent it. Um, water has just about everything you need to make it the ideal solvent for chemistry of life. In fact, it's the ideal solvent for just about everything, up, up to certain funky organics. First and foremost, water is really abundant, right? It's made of hydrogen and oxygen. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, and oxygen's up in there in the top four. It's liquid over a fairly wide range of temperatures, between 0 and 100 degrees Celsius. This turns out to be the ideal temperature for a lot of chemical reactions. If it's too cold, the reactions will go too slowly or stop entirely. If it's too hot, the molecules you're trying to get the reactions to go on start getting fragile and come apart before the, the reactions can occur. Or maybe the reactions go on so fast, they produce so much heat that they produce the wrong things. So there's a very narrow range of temperature that life seems to like. It's only about 100 degrees Celsius between the freezing and boiling point of water. It's a fairly wide range of temperatures. Lots of chemistry can occur. 
Water can dissolve most chemicals, especially organic chemicals. Almost every organic chemical, with a few exceptions like lipids, are water-soluble. But they're not soluble in other things. Water has a very high heat capacity. It takes quite a bit of energy to pump into a pot of water to make it boil. It can soak up an awful lot of energy. Water has another interesting property, which isn't an obvious one for this. Water is less dense when it freezes. What that means is if water freezes, it floats to the top. So you very quickly can form, if you're freezing a pond over, you quickly form a cap of ice on top rather than freezing it all the way to the ground unless cold is really extreme and deep. So you can actually begin to form a barrier between the cold outside air. But basically the way to think of it is a body of water sitting in cold air will begin to freeze from the top down because the ice will float. You eventually begin forming an ice barrier between the cold air and the water underneath. So it actually turns out to be a really nice thing compared to something where if you can imagine a, a fluid that makes an ice and the ice is heavier than the, than the liquid, then it would sink and then more ice is made and sink and you kind of accumulate ice from the bottom up. You're always squeezing your liquid between your cold stuff and the, and the cold stuff you just made. The cold air and the cold stuff you just made. The final property, again, not exactly an obvious one until you think about it, is water, all the little mo water molecules moving around, they're not free like in a gas. They sort of feel the electric fields of all the other molecules and so they form this kind of halfway between gas and solid phase known as a liquid. Turns out that water has very, very high surface tension compared to other liquids. A good example of this, if you compare putting a droplet of water in your hand to putting a droplet of something like, say, rubbing alcohol, another example of a room temperature liquid. Notice what happens. Try this experiment with small quantities of rubbing alcohol in your hands. You'll notice the rubbing alcohol spot will spread out very, very quickly. It also evaporates very quickly on body temperature. Rubbing alcohol, actually alcohols of most kinds are really good solvents. We can dissolve all kinds of interesting things in alcohol, and, and we do. Um, but it has a very narrow range of temperatures over which it's liquid. And it has a very low surface tension. Water has high surface tension and a wide range of temperatures. Why surface tension? Surface tension helps form a boundary between water and not water. That's hard to get through. So bits of stuff hit the top of the, of the water. If they don't have enough force to be able to break the surface tension, they stay away from the inside. It's kind of an extra barrier layer that you get in bodies of water. So water is really just an absolutely marvelous substance. Okay? Yes, yeah, sometimes it's a nuisance like when it falls out of the sky or pools up someplace when your pipes break, but it's extremely useful for a life for a very large number of reasons. All the properties we would want make carbon chemistry of life and water kind of just go together. It makes sense from the point of view of cosmic abundances because they're all made of the most abundant substances around. So it also gives us some important clues. The important clue that we can draw from some of this thing is we look at the chemistry of metabolism, we look at the raw materials of metabolism, we look at the, the ideal medium of metabolism, liquid water, and we come up with some, and the sources of energy that metabolism taps, and we come up with a couple of clues that why is it in all the almost uncountable diversity of life on this planet, they've settled on such a small number of possible biochemical solutions? Why is it we don't have a greater diversity of cellular chemistry? Why don't we have a greater diversity? Why aren't there microbes that live in alcohol? Well, this is giving us some clues as to what the... We're starting to build up an idea of understanding life 
We're starting now reaching the point in our understanding where we can start translating into what are the requirements for life? What are the prerequisite conditions to expect life can exist? Helps us, if you will, know which street lamps to be looking under for the car keys. So some of these are as follows. It looks like no matter what we do, the metabolism chemistry of cells requires a source of energy, be it photons or chemicals. So we need to have a source of energy for life. We shouldn't be looking in places that don't have free energy running around, don't have photons or chemical energy possible. The fact that water is such an ideal, abundant liquid solvent suggests that one of the other places we should be looking for are places where there is abundant liquid water because it's so ideal for the chemistry, but also we should be looking for environments that are warm enough that liquids, water stays liquid for very long periods of time. Oh, like, say, the last 3.8 billion years on Earth, for the most part. We should be looking at places where the materials are going to be, the conditions and materials are there to allow for complex chemistry. And we think this is going to be primarily carbon chemistry. Finally, we want to look someplace with abundant source of raw materials, and those raw materials are carbon and other heavy elements like oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur, to name a few. So we're starting to, from looking at life on Earth, begin to start building up a table of requirements that's going to tell us where we might start looking for life elsewhere. Any questions? Good. In that case, I will see you all tomorrow.